Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. today, the four-time Emmy-winning producer of The Symptoms, 28-year veteran of that show. Yes. Uh, of course, the creator of the, uh, the cult hit The Critic, uh, okay. contributors to some fantastic films like uh, Ice Age, Kung Fu Panda, uh, and of course... Despicable Me. Despicable Me, and uh, a playwright as well. Yes. Uh, we're actually... Mystery writer. We're sitting in a room full of my awards here. We are. This is the Mike Reese uh, kind of... The museum of museum me. of Mike Reese, and we're, <laughs> and we're on 42nd uh, actually in New York. So, yes. so right in the heart of the theater district. Right in the <laughs> right in the heart of the tacky museum district. <laughs> right near Ripley's it. Museum. I can actually see Ripley's right museum. from here. Yep, that is very cool, uh, Mike. You know, it's it's great to meet you. We we met through um, our mutual associate uh, James Robinson, mm-hmm. uh, who who always seems to introduce me to some fascinating people, although. You should really be a little bit more cautious t- taking a recommendation to meet an Australian from an Englishman. I should have immediately said all your alarm bells. <laughs> he called you a Brit. He called you a Brit and mentioned Arids. So I, that, that's even worse. I'm Australian master. I was it. Yes, I think that was how he was trying to get you into my hole. <laughs> well, you know, you've had an extraordinary career involved in comedy. And I, I think, you know, when I was, was researching you and reading about you, um, I was kind of wondering, is this, is this like a vocation? Like, did you know from the beginning you were going to be a comedy writer or was it sort of forced upon you? I didn't know it was a thing. It was never my plan exactly. And yet, in another way, I don't want to say it was my destiny, but it was sort of, this is what I was going to be. Were you were the clown in, in, in class? No, I was not. I was, I, there's a huge difference. Like, I'll, I'll tell you the moment. I was watching Ed Sullivan show and... You probably don't even know what that is. But I was a kid. I was like six. And Woody Allen was doing stand-up on this variety show. And I just sat there going, that's the guy. Somehow I'm six and, you know, he's this New York guy. And I'm going, he thinks like I think. And again, I was six years old. And I I remember thinking, I said, I didn't want to say, I didn't want to be that guy. I never wanted to be on stage. I said, oh, I wish I wrote that. I wish, and I just had this sense, sort of this image that there was some guy at a typewriter backstage feeding him this material. <laughs> and that was it. I always wanted to be the guy behind the scenes. I never wanted to be a performer ever. And I would never want to direct anything like that. I just want to write. I want to crank this stuff out and let other people do it. And I'll tell you, when I was just a little older, I was eight years old, and uh, I was reading a book about the Marx Brothers. I mean, I loved comedy, and I read about a guy named Al Bosberg. You know, this is not, most kids' heroes are not Al Bosberg. And what they said about this guy was, they said, you never wanted to read a script by Al Bosberg, but he could fix other people's scripts. He was a great punch-up, a great script doctor. And I thought, that's what I want to be at eight. And I would tell people... At eight? Said, Do you want to be eight, a, a script doctor? A script doctor. And people, when I was a kid, they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a script doctor. And they said, oh, that's cute. He wants to be a doctor like his father. I was like, no, you rude. <laughs> I, want to be, I want to fix scripts. And 
it's shocking that you know more than a writer I am a script doctor you know, yeah. all these animated films I work on I I don't write the scripts. I fix other people's scripts. And, and at what point do they bring in a script doctor? Is it sort of the triage, triage emergency situation where they go, this is not working, let's bring in the fixer? It's, uh, it varies. It varies. In animated films, they always have teams. Some poor soul has to write the original draft. And there's nothing harder than that, than writing an animated movie, creating, because you're not only creating the characters, you're creating the world and the story, and you're, you're really exhausted just getting it all on paper, and then it's not funny, and that's where they bring in other writers to fix things, and so I'll mention there was a movie I worked on, there was a movie called, I'll even say, it was Rio, I worked on this animated movie, big hit, named Rio, and I just hated working on it, I just... They weren't using my material, which is fine, but they weren't using anyone's material. It was never getting any funnier. And so I kept quitting, and they kept saying, no, Mike, we need you on Rio. Rio won't be the same without you. And so I, I kept with it, and it was very frustrating. And when the movie finally wrapped is when I found out there were 19 other writers working on the movie. 19 other writers? 19. And there's, there's been more. There's, there's, I think, the movie Shrek had 42 writers on it. It's actually extraordinary that these movies stay funny after so many people are involved. Yes, it's, uh, you know, it takes years to make an animated movie so they can just constantly be tinkering with them. One reason I work, I love working on the Ice Age movies is they keep it small. There's four or five of us who keep rewriting each other. We're aware of each other. So, so much of Ice Age in particular was visual humor. I mean, right. there, there wasn't even really any dialogue. And so, so how do you write jokes you don't even hear? You Well, this is sort of the secret of the Ice Age movies. And the Ice Age movies, they don't do particularly well in America. They do, they, they've done okay. But overseas, these Ice Age movies are the biggest animated franchise in history. They're bigger than Shrek. They're bigger than Toy Story. And I know what they love is Scrap. They love the squirrel who runs around. That stuff's all silent. And... Part of the secret is that stuff's not even in the script. It's not in the script, which means the studio can't tinker with it. And I don't write any of that, I have to say. I mean, I'm very proud of my Ice Age work. I've never written a bit of what people really love about the movies, which is scrap. And the animators just work that stuff out among themselves and then throw it in at the last minute before anyone can wreck it. So I'll tell you a great story, <laughs> which is, I was in the Ukraine. Because again, these movies are international hits, and it's the one time I've seen like the directors and writers interviewed, and they say, why are these, shows, why are these films so successful? And everyone goes, no idea. I haven't got a clue. We don't know. We're glad people like them. So I'm in the Ukraine, and I'm in a park, and all over the park are big statues of scratch. Holder, you know, in, in, in the Ukraine, in the Ukraine, unlicensed, bootleg, you know, eight foot high statues of Scrat, and uh, and so I asked the woman, why do people love Scrat so much? And this woman says, he teaches children that life is hopeless. <laughs> so he's, he's kind of replaced the kind of the, the great Russian novelist. <laughs> <laughs> he's the Dostoevsky of the. Uh, I love that. <laughs> I, I'm always amazed at how comedy and, and, and these 
characters that are received cross-culturally. Yeah. I mean, when you look at, of course, Ice Age or Kung Fu Panda, which is kind of a huge hit in China, uh, and even The Simpsons, how do you write comedy that appeals beyond a square block? It's... Uh, the, the Simpsons, we not only don't think... Will they like this in Tehran? We don't even think will they like this in Texas. We just we we write that show just thinking about the room we're in. We're just trying to make each other laugh, and even we don't give a thought, especially to references. Will they get this in Texas? You know, there's so many inside jokes or show business. I think I'd be scared to watch a show that people would get in Texas. (laughs) (laughs) But this is the amazing thing. I mean. Again, they like The Simpsons in America. It's popular. But they love it in Britain. And they worship it in Australia. But there's nowhere the fans are as hardcore as in Bolivia. Bolivia? Bolivia is the place I visited where it was on TV. You know, when when you work on a TV show and you go somewhere, you're always looking at other people's TV hoping your show is on. And in Bolivia... It was on every screen, day and night. Everywhere. Is it all the lithium in the water? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they see in it. And I mean, they love they love the show all over South America. They love it in Singapore, and we don't know. I mean, I don't know what they're getting out of it. I had I had a theory recently, but you know, it's best just do your job. Just try and do a good show, and never think about. Who's gonna love it? Because you can't predict it, and if you're trying to write to a certain audience, you're probably gonna miss that mark. You know, when a show's been running as long as The Simpsons, and you say it's 28 years, right? 28. We're beginning our 28th year. So, not only have you got multiple generations that have sort of been exposed to it at different points. I mean, there's almost no shows that were popular in the 90s that are still around today. That is correct. So, if you're a group of writers trying to bring something fresh to that, I mean, how do you avoid? as they say, jumping the shark. <laughs> it's, well, I mean... How do you not run out of ideas? That is the very hardest part of our job. More than making it funny or coming up with st- stuff, it's just, what haven't we done already? Is there someone in the room whose job it is just to say, you know, we kind of did that in episode 463? I will tell, a, if I can tell an anecdote. Uh, I pitched the joke, because this, this just happened last week. I pitched the joke. Uh, here was the joke. It was... Uh, grandpa's in the nursing home and he says, I want to watch TV. And someone goes, who died and made you boss? And he goes, Fred. And he points to Fred, who was dead on the ground holding the remote. <laughs> and everybody laughed. And then Al Jean, who's been running the show for 15 years, he's my, my writing partner for 16 years before that. So Al, everyone laughs. Al Jean goes, I think we did that. And, he's, and he tells the, uh, the writer's assistant, Pull up script 7F08. He doesn't say pull up the one where Grandpa gets a lemon tree or something. He says pull up 7F08, which means pull up the eighth episode of season seven, 21 years ago. And she pulls up the script and it goes, go to page 30. And we're looking at 30. 31. No, 32. There's the joke. He remembered it from 21 years ago. So he's, you know, he's Rain Man with a sense of humor. And so, you know, I mean, it's not just in comedy or writing, but the companies face this all the time, of that, that ability to constantly generate, when you've been around for a long, to have that energy to bring back to it. Right. It's, it's, uh, one thing is we have a big staff. We have about 22 writers, and we do 22 episodes a year. And so 
nobody gets to write. Nobody gets to write more than once. So you get you can be very personal about that and make sure yours comes out great. But that's what it requires is a lot of manpower. Do you feel that uh, the reception to the show and other things, comedy now is changing because of the internet? I mean, in some ways, people say we're in the golden age of television because no one watches television anymore. It's... Uh, Netflix, Hulu... I mean, it, the, the, this has introduced whole new audiences to shows. Yes. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. I can, I can say one thing as I watch more TV, and I, uh, which is... I don't know if The Simpsons gets credit for it, and maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but I was just thinking about this this morning, which was when The Simpsons came on, TV was so lazy. I'm not saying it was bad, but it was lazy. It was just Bill Cosby sitting on a couch, just rambling. And that was that's the number one show on TV. Which he's still doing now, but just taking the camera away. Now <laughs> <laughs> he's in a witness box rambling. <laughs> And, and so, but that and there's it's not a joke to say the most energetic comedy on TV at the time The Simpsons came out was The Golden Girls. Oh. They at least buzzed around. And that had been running for almost as long as, as yeah. The Simpsons is now. Right? They were young women when the show started. Yeah. But TV was just quiet and lazy, and it was. I think what happened was Norman Lear came out with All in the Family, and. That didn't, other shows didn't look like that at the time. They were kind of high concept and bewitched and I dream of genie. And Norman Lear said, no, we can just do a, a show sitting on a couch if people say provocative things, right? And so, and then about 10 years later, they stopped saying provocative things, but they were still keeping the couch. They kept the furniture and threw out the ideas. So Simpsons comes along and it was Sam Simon basically saying, how much can we pack into a show? How fast can we move it? How many levels can we work on? And we did that, and then I think I saw it spread through TV, even Seinfeld. And it was incredibly provocative. I think people forget how, yeah, you know, it, was, it was a moral hazard when it came out. I think you even got a censure from George Bush. George, the George first. Bush Sr. <laughs> criticized the show. His wife, Barbara Bush, said it, The Simpsons is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. You which, cannot get a better testimonial. I know, you know, stupider <laughs> than either of her children. And uh, and that was it. We were condemned by the National Council of Churches until somebody pointed out The Simpsons is the only family on TV that goes to church. Yeah. And uh, and are still together 28 years later. <laughs> that's it. And Homer doesn't cheat. And and that was it. And so there was a, there was a, a, a gradual turnaround. Now we're endorsed by the Pope. The, the last... The creepy German Pope endorsed The Simpsons. He, he loves its Christian values. So, yes, and the show has gone so mainstream, and yet we didn't change anything. The show is more shocking even than when it came out. It's just the rest of the world and popular culture has just so degraded and gotten so vulgar that we sort of look kind of quaint and yeah. institutional. How, how do you be provocative these days? You know, we don't even try. I mean, we, we, in fact, we never try. That's one thing is, I look at a show like South Park or Family Guy where they try and shock you and, you know, that's part of their humor and it works. I love Family Guy partly because I think, oh, I'm unshockable and then they'll do some joke about Auschwitz. I go, ooh, I guess I can be shocked. <laughs> Simpsons never set out to provoke. I mean, we were just... Again, trying to write fresh jokes, and we wound up hitting on a lot of material that just 
hadn't been hit on TV. Well, the, the, the kind of the role of parody now is interesting. I mean, you one of the things you, you did very interesting in your early career was work on National Lampoon. Correct. <clears throat> which which I came across you know, when I was a kid because I used to steal my uncle's old back copies, you know, and it was this sort of racy, bawdy, yep. I mean, very unusual magazine for its time. Uh, and of course, you know, the idea of parody then was, was, was really quite something new in media. But now, you know, when you look at the Kardashians and reality TV, I, I don't know if this generation even know what parody is. Like, how, can is. Have, how can you have parody in major reality television? Yeah, maybe we're too old to do it. I don't know. It's, but yes, I wouldn't know how to parody that stuff. How to, you know, how to get crazier than Donald Trump. I just, it, you can't it, even make fun of it, right? Like, right. <laughs> you know, we do our jokes. It all seems sort of tired because nothing is as crazy as Donald Trump himself. He's, I, it, it hit me. He's sort of this SNL character come to life. He's some, something they would do on SNL like 14 times till they burned out the character. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, the, the Simpsons was quite famous for actually presaging all of this uh, in an episode as a joke. Yes, we, we did a joke about... we. Like many things on The Simpsons, we just go, what's the stupidest thing we can imagine? And then it happens. And that was it. We, we were doing a future episode of the show, and we needed to name a future U.S. president who completely wrecked the economy, and we picked Donald Trump. So 16 years ago, we predicted Donald Trump as president. And in fact, 27 years ago, we sort of did the whole Donald Trump story with Mr. Burns. We had It was... I think the 15th episode out of 600 episodes we've done, the 15th one was about Mr. Burns running for governor. And he really ran a Donald Trump kind of campaign. And so, you know, we can't do it. I mean, and if, if we wanted to tell the Donald Trump story, that would be how we do it. We'd localize it instead of president, governor, instead of richest <laughs> man in the country, he'd be the richest man in Springfield. But we did it. We thought of it already. <laughs> We were talking earlier about uh, the, the speaking you do, and uh, I think you, you were saying that the first talk you ever gave was just after, was just as 9-11 was happening. Yes. Uh, in China. In China. Everything was wrong with this. It was, it was I've, I've given 400 speeches, I've given them in 20 countries, because almost everybody likes The Simpsons and wants to hear about it. Uh, this first one was for Goldman Sachs in China, and it was... You know, just to, and the, the audience didn't speak English. It was 2001. They hadn't heard of The Simpsons. They didn't know what I was talking about. And 9-11 had just happened. And not only did 9-11 just happen, but I was actually staying in the World Trade Center of Hong Kong. That was where they put me up. So that was great. And uh, nobody was in the mood to laugh. And I gave my speech and to dead silence. I mean, the speech is just an hour of, of jokes and funny anecdotes. Played dead silence, except right in the middle, I, I mentioned the word Viagra, and they laughed, and then more silence. And, <laughs> and as I was leaving, somebody said to me, I've never seen a Chinese audience laugh that hard. <laughs> I actually saw an interview with you, um, I think you are being interviewed by CCTV. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. And, uh, it was funny because it was like kind of this, this Chinese local host was sort of being a David Letterman Chinese, <laughs> Chinese version, right? And, 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 I, and I just realized that so much of the, this new entertainment is actually being designed specifically for this 
this market now because it's such a huge market. It's so huge. I mean, I think without China, Transformers wouldn't exist as a franchise. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're at a funny point with the Ice Age movies, which was this last Ice Age movie, Ice Age 5, uh, uh, made 60 million, it cost 100 million, made 60 million in America. And animated movies don't make that. They all make at least 100 million because there's that many kids. So it made nothing in America, but it's made $400 million worldwide. And so the question is, are, do you keep making a movie in America that Americans don't want to see? Yeah. Oh, and, and do you keep having American writers writing movies that Chinese audiences want to watch? Right. There was, a, there was a funny moment came up in The Simpsons where uh, the show had become too expensive. We did, the Simpsons about three years ago came very close to being canceled and nobody knows it. And it was just, it had become wildly expensive and the most expensive part of it was our cast. And I love our cast, but they, they each make about $9 million a year. Six people making $9 bucks a year. And that blew out our budget. And one of the writers on the show figured out we could keep the show going if we just did it in Spanish. If we just didn't do an English language version, because so much of our money comes from South America. So, so the dub actors would become the stars. They would become the stars. Well, it's a, it's a, it's it sounds like a joke. So, like so much that happens at The Simpsons, it sounds like a gag. But our Simpsons actors, again, we're, we're making nine million dollars a year, and. The Simpsons actors for, who dub it in South America, they're, they're Mexican actors. They make $25 a week, except for Homer. The Mexican Homer makes $50 a week because he brings the microphone. He owns the mic. This is still to this day. I, I'll bet they're up around 100 bucks. <laughs> but yes, that, those are the literal numbers. That's what they were making. And somebody, we heard this, we were really shocked, and then somebody watched the Mexican-Spanish version of the show, and goes, I think they're overpaid. <laughs> you've, you've had a lot of c- celebrities you know, yeah. involved in the show. Um, what have been some of the issues? Do you have, have you always had to have sort of celebrity wranglers on set? Uh, no, no. We, I can say, I think we've had about 300 guest stars on the show. They've almost all been a dream to work with, and why? Why wouldn't they? They're they're, it's the easiest job in the world. I mean, they mostly they can come in whenever they feel like it. It takes ten minutes to do their job. We'll go to their house. I think we recorded Magic Johnson in his car, so <laughs> it's so you know they don't have to get made up. Uh, the the closest we came, we had Michael Jackson on the show. Oh, and. Uh, his management sent us one of those crazy uh, waivers or whatever they call it. They said he needs a trailer. It has to be not. This is I'm not making this up. Trailer it has to be 98 degrees. He needs four kinds of bottled 98 water. 98 degrees. That was what we heard. What was it like a hammam? Well, he <laughs> needs fresh flowers everywhere. And we did all this, and then Michael Jackson comes in alone. Didn't go anywhere near the trailer. Didn't know about the trailer. He couldn't have been more friendly, more, more personable. Shook everybody's hands. This was about three noses before his death. He looked very handsome and kind of strong. It was, it was, it was. A, he was much different than we sort of expected. He came in very friendly. Uh, Sam Simon did something very funny that day, which was 
Michael, you know, Michael Jackson, and again, Michael Jackson, a legend now, but I mean, he was the hugest star in the world at that moment he came in. And so we're sitting there, and Sam Simon, the creator of the show, made an announcement. He goes, all right, I'd like to have a big round of applause for Michael Reese, who won $50 playing Phone Jeopardy. And Michael looked baffled, and he applauded. He was getting... So uh, what, what, what's next for you? I mean, uh, you're heavily involved now with plays. I do write plays. It's, are, they, are they funny plays? They are funny plays. People, it's funny because uh, they get disparaged by younger writers going, this sounds like Neil Simon. And it's like, good, you know, <laughs> he's funny. He won a Pulitzer Prize. But I write plays, and what I like, unlike these, it's sort of, I, I got pushed into it because I was so... Uh, burned out and sort of unhappy working on all these animated movies. And when you write an animated, when you punch up these animated movies, they will literally use 1% of your work and they think you're happy. They're happy, you know, there's... there's so you've got, you, you spend all these hours and get one line in. One line in, ten lines in. It was, I think it was Ice Age 4. I wrote 2,000 pages of material of which I got about 20 pages of material into the script. So that's 1%. And then, but that's not enough to not only get no credit. I didn't get, nobody thanked me on the movie. They mentioned here's the 50 babies born <laughs> during making of the movie. Nowhere will you find my name in there. And, you know, I wrote a joke every minute in that movie. So Anyway, I was so frustrated with that. And then I found out playwriting, you know, there's no money in it, it's no proof. But they do everything you write. They do every word you write. And I, I love to tell this story. I wrote this play, uh, and the play had this tough Boston guy in it. That was one of the characters. And there was a line I wrote from called that just went, he just, his line was, who the hell is Jimmy? Because in Boston, they call sprinkles on ice cream jimmies. So he goes, who the hell is Jimmy? And every night I would go see the play, and every night he would say, who's the hell is Jimmy? And I sort of liked it. I go, well, that's good character. I like this turn he's taking on the line. And it was only when the play ended, I looked at the script and saw, oh, it's a typo. <laughs> I love that. They don't do your typos. And I had another play where... It had a joke about Robin Williams. This woman said, I just saw Robin Williams in the street. And we're doing the play, and in the middle of the run of the play, Robin Williams commits suicide. And uh, and, and the actress says to me, could I say, I just saw Robin Williams yesterday? I go, no, 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 we'll change the line. You don't have to stick to that. Do you find the process of writing something that you have so much control over is very different to writing for television? Yes. I mean, I just, I like it even if it's my fault. I mean, if something goes bad, I know it's my fault. I don't mind that. If it goes well, I can take all the, the credit for it. People who, who perform comedy and write comedy often do it from a place of, at some level, suffering and pain. No. Is that true? I don't even that, think that that's true. I mean, I you seem think... very well adjusted and happy. I'm a very happy guy. Uh, Although living in LA probably would have contributed to some of your creativity. Sure. I certainly was, was miserable there. It's, there's, there's a funny thing in that there's this 
a shocking dichotomy between comedy writers and comedians. People love to lump them all together, and there is some crossover. Certainly, and, and you but, always said you didn't want to be Woody Allen; you want to be the one feeding him the jokes. Right, that's right. <laughs> Although, you know, I was six, and I probably shouldn't have gone anywhere near Woody Allen at that <laughs> age. And but, but somebody told me ninety uh, percent. This is a psychologist that ninety percent of comedians are clinically depressed. And I work with comedy writers, and they couldn't be, for the most part, better adjusted. The Simpsons writers are just sort of the nicest bunch of friendly guys, long, stable marriages, mostly second marriages, but <laughs> long and stable nonetheless. And I don't see a lot of problems among those guys. So, so in terms of the spectrum of clinical depression, it sort of goes comedy writers, comedians, and improv. <laughs> <laughs> So um, what, you know, do you feel like there's a new generation now discovering comedy? Uh, I mean, because I'm, I'm amazed. I came across this guy who was, you know, I think he's like 12 or 13. He's doing six-second Vine comedy. Uh-huh. And, and so I kind of wonder, like, how, if you were a young writer today and you were, you were kind of being a Mike Reese in, in, <laughs> in 2016 starting out, how do you look at this? I know, at least, I wish... I wish I was a young Mike Reese starting out today, just because the tools are there, the a- the assets are there. And the audience is there, I mean, yeah. if you can be good enough. But I, I love just the access to being able to watch hours and hours and hours of comedy on YouTube. You know, you don't even have to pay for it. You don't even have to get Netflix. But to be able to see all the great stuff. And I think... I think comedy and writing is not something you can teach, and I've never worked with a writer who ever took a course in writing, and the way you learn anything is just by seeing a lot of it, and you absorb it. That's the reason, one way I started writing plays was the fact that I moved to New York 10 years ago and just started seeing plays, and I never thought I'd be writing them, but you sit through enough of them, you go, all right, I think I know how this is done. Well, Mike, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show. I'd love to hang out in the Museum of Mike Reese. <laughs> and, uh, I have a coupon for your next visit. As long as my parking's validated. Totally Thank you very much. What a pleasure. Cheers. This is so easy. <laughs>